He couldn't get it out of his mind. You know, one of those things you replay over and over and over again, hoping that just, that maybe somehow, some way, the end result will not turn out as bad as you know it is. For Peter, these last few weeks had simply been a blur. Everything that had happened, all that had gone on, overshadowed and colored by the thick, dark cloud of his failure. Nothing was bigger than it. Nothing more significant. While everyone around him seemed to be basking in the glory and hope of Jesus' resurrection, Peter could not seem to get out from underneath the shadow of his own denial. His betrayal of Jesus... In Jesus' darkest hour. Oh, he tried to move on. There were even times when when he laughed and joked with the guys, even started to dream with them about what it would mean to share the good news of following Jesus with the world. But it always ended the same. The nightmare of what he'd done, telling him again, that while God might use the other disciples to do something great, he had ruined his chance. The other guys... They could see it on him. They, they knew something wasn't right. Peter had always been the life of the party, full of joy, enthusiasm, passion, hopes, dreams, vision. He'd lost count of the number of times they'd asked him over the past weeks what was wrong. John in particular, he was the one in the group most perceptive, most tuned in to the feelings of others. In many ways, he and Peter were opposites. They thought about life and approached situations so differently. John, for instance, would have been the last guy to leap out of a boat on a stormy sea or or shout the answer to a question or impulsively draw a sword. And many times, Peter had, had thought to himself and even openly challenged John to have bigger, bolder faith in God. Don't think so much. Why do you always have to analyze it? Just go for it, man. It's Jesus. Until now, failure had never intimidated Peter. It wasn't something he really even thought about much. You see, it wasn't that Peter had never failed before. Oh, he'd had his missteps, his corrections, his shortfalls. Missing the meaning of parables time and time again hoping to remain on the mountaintop with Jesus at the transfiguration forever. He and the guys attempting to keep the children away, that one didn't go over so well. And then there was the time that he had challenged the death of Jesus and in response heard those words, Get back from me, Satan. Strong, rebuking words that probably would have buckled anybody else, but... But Peter seemed to take them in stride. But not this time. This time his failure seemed bigger than that. Too big for for him to just to absorb on his own. And it all started in that room, the upper room where Jesus had taken them to share the Passover meal. There was so much happening. There was so much he thought he understood and so much he was sure that he didn't. It's like if you've ever been in a conversation or listened to a lecture and you're only grasping like 50% of what the person is saying, not understanding the vocabulary or the context and you're trying so hard to follow it. That was sort of how Peter felt as Jesus talked about death and dying and rising and serving and the coming kingdom of God that he was ushering in. But even though Peter didn't fully understand it all, 
in that moment, he had never felt more committed to Jesus. He remembered Jesus taking the water basin to wash the disciples' feet. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He'd asked. Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, he'd he'd replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. The audacity of that statement. This This was yet another time Jesus had been forced to correct him. Then, after supper on the Mount of Olives, there were the words that Peter had understood. The words that that rang abrupt and crystal clear in his mind. Jesus paused before he spoke to them, looked them all in the eye. You will all fall away. You will all fall away. Even if all fall away, I will not, Peter retorted. And then came those words from Jesus, those cutting piercing words. Truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And and it wasn't just the words. Everything about Jesus, his face, his voice, his countenance, all of it told Peter that Jesus was very serious about this, but he just could not accept it. The last thing he would ever do is walk away from Jesus now. For a moment he thought about saying nothing. He even tried to tell himself not to respond. But everything inside of him was screaming, This cannot be so. He could still feel the emphatic insistence in his argument that night. The passion with which he he challenged and argued with Jesus. Looking back, one of the toughest things about what had happened was Peter's recollection of how certain he had been that it wouldn't. Because that's how life is, right? Our most difficult failures are the ones we pridefully declare will never happen to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks to the early church about this very thing. And in the message, his words read like this. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Remember that, Paul said. Remember that before you declare your own self-righteousness, maybe in that moment he was thinking of Peter. But with everything Peter knew, with everything he felt in his soul, he would stand by Jesus to the end. There had been no doubting this for him. I mean, we've all been there, been in that place where we've determined something, where we've decided something, declared and committed to it wholeheartedly, without reservation, without doubt, with much passion and enthusiasm. Have you ever said these words? I would never, I will always, from this point forward, I'm going to, never again will I, God, let me just say as I sit here and sing this worship song or listen to this message or see one more time the pain of my actions from this point forward, it's all going to be different. I'm going to do it this way. And then, if you're like me, 
So often, much to our embarrassment and disappointment, and even sometimes shame, we find that as convinced and motivated and determined as we truly are, our follow-through falls flat. Maybe, maybe for you that happens, and it's just something simple. Maybe it's just a quiet time that you've committed to again. Or a Bible reading plan that you've determined that this time you will see through to the very end. Or a workout routine or a relationship that you intend to give more time to. And it just doesn't happen. And it just floats off into the distance. But maybe, just maybe, maybe for you this truth resonates with something more serious. Maybe the place where a commitment has been tested and failed is something that seems more life-changing, life-defining even. A destructive habit that we've resolved time and time and time again to change, and yet it continues to rip through our families. An addiction that we never intended, never wanted, cannot believe we're facing. A marriage that, that we committed to before God. And now we're watching it unravel before our very eyes. Maybe we've already walked away. We never thought it would happen to us. A pregnancy we did not plan. A relationship with a child or a parent or a friend that has gone off the rails. An affair that just, it just seemed to happen. I swore to myself I'd never be that guy. I'd, I'd never be the kind of person that would do this. And yet here you are. You see, it's one thing to mess up, to even blow it from time to time, but to find yourself doing something you never thought you were capable of, to be in a situation you never imagined you would be in, to discover that you are in fact the very person you swore to yourself that you would never be, to flip so quickly on convictions that you believed were at the very center and core of your identity. This is the shocking reality that has wrecked Peter. How could he ever promise anything again? How could he ever trust himself, trust his feelings and commitments, ask others to trust them? How could he even consider himself a reliable leader, someone fit to follow Jesus, let alone shepherd his people? I mean, if he could turn back Turn his back on Jesus just hours after believing so deeply that he would stand with him until death. What did that say about the kind of person he truly was? Sometimes when he replayed the scene in his mind, he would think he could keep those words from coming off his lips. He would imagine himself bold and courageous like he'd been so many times before. Yes, I am one of his disciples, he would say, and I will follow him to the death. He would picture himself standing next to Jesus in Caiaphas's courtyard, spit upon, beaten, struck alongside his Lord. But try as he might, as hard as he could imagine and think, as many times as he would replay the scene in his brain, every single time the words came out the same and they haunted him. He could still hear the accusation and threat and the voice of that servant girl as she looked him up, up and down. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. 
All eyes had been on him then. And three times he denied it. Three times he had done just exactly what hours before he claimed he would never do. Mark, who many of you know was actually Peter's personal secretary, records perhaps the most vivid description of this scene. The gospel that comes so much from Peter's perspective that gets inside his head so many times. Here's what Mark says. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near Peter said to him, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Luke records that in that moment, that just in that moment, from across the courtyard, Peter's eyes lock with Jesus. That he sees him. I can only imagine what he felt staring across at his Savior, knowing that he had just done exactly what moments before he claimed he would never do. I mean, sure, all the disciples had told Jesus they too would never disown him and fall away. They all had claimed they would die with him. But Peter, he was the one everyone expected to actually come through. He was the one who had displayed the greatest faith time and time and time again. He was the one who had trusted Jesus on the water in the midst of the storm. He was the one who had the courage to first declare, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the one who had drawn his sword in the garden, cut off the ear of the soldier when they came to take his Jesus away, knowing full well the consequences of drawing a sword on a Roman soldier. But none of that mattered now. His confidence, his commitment, his faith, it all seemed shattered, insignificant in the wake of this epic failure. Weeks had gone by and and now the disciples were in Galilee on the very sea where years earlier Peter's journey with Jesus had begun. On that day, Peter's memory was working overtime. His regret was getting the best of him, and so he he determined to go fishing, and the others joined him. Of course they did. They always followed Peter. There was just something about him. People always rallied to him. It had been a blessing for so long, and now it felt like a curse. While the others cast nets, Peter took the role of the swimmer, the one who stripped down to his loincloth and would dive in periodically to manage, fix, and check the nets for fish. Diving off the bow of the boat, the the cool, fresh water seemed an effective distraction from his thoughts. But then, as the sun, sun came up and the fish continued to stay away, Peter's thoughts once again went the way they always did. 
they drifted back to Jesus. The teaching he'd heard from almost this very spot. The storm he'd calmed on this very sea. The miraculous feeding of thousands he'd witnessed not just once but twice across this lake on the opposite shore. With all that he had seen, with everything he knew and had experienced, how could he have done it? The words welled up inside of him again, accusing, condemning. You're a coward and a failure. Then out of nowhere, he was pulled back to the present, back to the moment by a voice. Friends, haven't you any fish? The man called out from shore. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, I'm not sure how he didn't see it. I'm not sure how in this moment Peter doesn't connect the dots. I mean, looking back, it seems so obvious. It would have been impossible to miss the fact that this event is almost identical to the very event Jesus used to call these men to follow him years earlier. But then again, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Peter couldn't remember feeling this far from God ever in his life. You ever find yourself in that place? Where you're so far from God, where your failure, your embarrassment, your shame has so consumed you that you can't even hear what God is trying to say anymore? You can no longer hear his voice. All you can hear is the condemning voice of you in your head. Listen to what we are told next. Listen to this next sentence. It is perhaps my favorite of the entire passage. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. You see, I love this verse. Because all of us, even the best of us, need people to help us see Jesus when we can't see him for ourselves. You got a friend like that? You got a John in your life? Someone who will gently and graciously and humbly direct you back to Jesus in moments of tremendous failure and regret and possibly even shame? I have to wonder here... I think I know, but I have to wonder, how much does John know? I mean, had, had Peter confessed to him based on what we read in John's gospel? My guess is he certainly had. Had, had, Peter, had Peter told him what had happened? Had they sat and talked about his deep regret and feelings of failure? How he couldn't seem to, to shake the shame of that night? Friends, in the face of failure, we all need people who help us see Jesus. Well now, finally, ready to face Jesus with his failure, Peter can no longer wait, not even another minute. And so he grabs his clothes, dives in, and swims for shore. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards when they landed. They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Did you know that scientists now say... Uh, there's tremendous evidence for this, actually, that smell is the scent 
that is most closely tied to your sense of memory? Did you know that? That that your sense of smell, more than sight or touch or hearing, triggers memories deep inside your brain. It's just like bonded together. Shortly after we moved up here, uh, my wife pulled a pillow out of a box, a box that we've had stored up in a closet in our home in Ventura for years. And in the kind of the moving process, it was, it was taken down and she discovered this pillow. And one afternoon, this is a number of months ago, I think when we were still in the missions house, she tossed this pillow to me and she said, smell this. And as soon as I did, it was like Grandma Mary's house. Pillow had been sitting in a box in our closet for years and yet it still just had the whiff of my wife's grandmother and it took me right into her kitchen. That place where I enjoyed so many pieces of apple pie and vanilla ice cream, right? There's just something about smell that can just transport you back. You see, in John chapter 18, the scene where Peter denies Jesus, we're told this in verse 18, right in the middle of of Peter denying him. This is how it reads. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. You see, the word John uses here for fire is the word anthrakia. It means a heap of burning coals. And it's actually the same word used to describe the the fire that, that Peter finds on the beach after he swims ashore to meet Jesus. Do we see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking Peter back, taking him back to this moment that he can't seem to forget, this moment that he cannot escape on his own. And by lighting this coal fire, Jesus is saying, let's face your failure together. Because that's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't just ignore our failures. He doesn't just forgive and sweep them under the rug and move on. They do not scare or intimidate him in any way. Instead, what Jesus chooses to do is masterfully use our failures as a tool to reshape our hearts. And now Peter sits on the beach with the scent of his most humiliating failure consuming his every thought. When they had finished eating, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John... Do you love me more than these? Interesting here that that Peter uses, or that Jesus uses Peter's full formal name, isn't it? I mean, chapters earlier, he's already renamed him. He's already said, from now on, you're going to be Peter. He always calls him Peter. And yet in this moment, he is Simon, son of John. Think about it for a second. When do you most remember people using your full formal name? Right. It sounds like you were like me. And it was when you were in trouble. I was mostly called David Gordon Teixeira in an angry tone from my father, who was not a small man, by the way. A large offensive lineman, played college football, an Air Force officer, and he wore those standard-issue silver uh, spectacles. And when he got mad and sweaty, they would like roll down on his nose, and he would look over the top at me. David, his brow, I mean, just like terrifying. David Gordon Teixeira. Still gives me willies, right? Okay. Friends, some things do not change with time and or culture. The use of the formal name here tells Peter that Jesus intends to have a very serious conversation with him. You see, failure does not intimidate Jesus, but he does take it real serious. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And, and now, in this question, Jesus does something so profound that if we aren't careful, we just might miss it. He starts to get at the root of Peter's failure. Notice what he doesn't say here. Notice how this interchange does not go between Jesus and Peter. If, if we were Jesus, this exchange would go much differently. Jesus does not say, hey, Pete, let's talk about what happened. You know, let's talk about what you did. Let's go back to the night in question and replay the events out and think about some other options you could have picked. Right? Don't say that. Don't stand here. It would have been real nice if you hadn't like denied me and betrayed me and turned your back on me in that moment. Kind of bummed me out. He does not say any of that. Why? Because he wants to go so far beyond just modifying Peter's behavior. Jesus takes Peter back to the moment before the moment, to the moment on the Mount of Olives, back to the statement when his, when his heart is truly revealed. All of you will fade away, Jesus told them. All of you will, will fall away. None of you. And what did Peter say in that moment to those words? He said, that's great, Peter, I mean Jesus. But even if all these guys fall away, even if all these dudes abandon you and neglect you and turn and run for the hills, I won't. Remember me, Jesus? You know who I am, right? I'm the one who knew you were the Christ. I'm the one who walked on the water. These schmoes of little faith, they may fall away, but not me. The thing Jesus understands here about Peter is that the reason his failure is so devastating is because his success, his performance, was actually the cornerstone of their relationship in Peter's mind. Peter's spiritual value was found in the fact that when he looked around and compared himself to everyone else, in his mind, he was following God more faithfully than them. Here's why. I'm the best because I'm better than them. Here's why my relationship with God is good. Because as I look around, I've got more faith than these guys do. You see, the thing about performance-based spirituality is that it will always and only ever produce one of two things. Pride when you think you've succeeded and devastation when you finally realize you have failed. Performance-based spirituality, earning your way into a relationship with God, cannot produce life and hope-giving joy and peace that Jesus offers. It will only produce pride or devastation. For a long time, Peter's been in the first camp, and now, now he's devastated. And, and what, what I really like about Jesus here... Um, because it's Peter and not me, but I like this about Jesus, is that he kind of throws it in his face. And this isn't flannel graph Jesus. This isn't nicey nice Jesus. This isn't, it's all going to be okay and everything's going to be happy and I'm Jesus. Not who Jesus is here. He says, this is what, this is what Jesus does. All right, mister. Mister, I think I'm better than everybody else. Mister, I think I can outperform and have more faith than everybody else. Let's just look at the facts. Let's go back and remember what actually happened. Do you love me more than these? Because remember you said, I, 
I'll be more faithful than these. I actually do love you more than these. These guys are out and I'm in. Is that how it went down? Because last time I looked, when I was hanging from the cross and looked down, it was actually John who was standing there with my mom. You were nowhere to be found. Do you love me more than these? And Peter's response, Yes, Lord, he said, You know that I love you. Now, a couple things here then, and scholars are all over the place on how we should read this little interchange, so I'm just going to point out to you a few of my observations and what I think. You can certainly find counter and other interpretations on the internet that fast. But, and that's okay, you're welcome to. You don't have to agree with me all the time. (laughs) First of all, we see that Peter seems to be growing here because he doesn't say... I do love you more than these. He just says, you know that I love you. It seems, at least for the moment, Peter has decided to drop the comparison game. The other thing, when when Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, Jesus uses the word for love, agape, which is the, the full, formal, most robust kind of love. It's the kind of love that is always from and empowered by God. And when Peter responds, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he does not use that word agape. He uses the word phileo. It's it's a sort of notch down. It's a degraded form of love. It's brotherly love. It seems Peter has learned a bit through this incident about humility. He understands now that he cannot love Jesus, that he does not love Jesus quite as much as he has claimed to in the past. Three times, Jesus asks him, three times, do you love me? Three times, he asks. And on the third time, Jesus actually changes the question. Do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you love me? Do you agape me? And then in the third one, verse 17, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you phileo me? It reads, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is undermining everything that Peter has thought up until this point. Peter, do you love me? Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, you say you love me, then why would you act this way? No, he just keeps asking him. And finally he says, so Peter kind of gets the message. I don't actually have the ability to agape you. And then Peter says, or then Jesus says, well, then Peter, let's push it one step farther. Do you even have the ability to phileo me? You see, if our relationship is based on your performance, it is doomed to fail. That seems obvious at this point. But let's go a step further. If our relationship is based even on your love for me, we're never going to make it. You see, what Peter learns here is that the only cornerstone for a relationship with God that will last, that can sustain, it is built not on our love for him, not on our good deeds done in his name, but solely and only on his love for us. Peter, the very nature of our relationship has got to change if we're going to move forward. Because if your calling 
The things I have planned for you to do, this church that, that I have sort of ordained you to lead moving forward, this movement that's going to grow and sweep the world, if you're going to be the man I need you to be in the church, and you're going to base your performance on your commitments, your love, your success, your abilities, it is doomed to fail. It's going nowhere. Unless you can learn to make the cornerstone of our relationship my love for you. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him. You see, sometimes giving up control, understanding that we cannot get there, that we cannot even love God enough, that hurts a little bit. Because we all like to think of ourselves in the same way Peter does. Good, successful people who really love God. Because I really do. And yet, when we get right down to it, it falls short. I guess the question today, friends, is... Got any regrets? Got any shame? Got any embarrassment? Got any just deeply hidden and held on to sin that you've been carrying around? Do you understand that Jesus would come and say, it's not worth carrying? He would also say, got any successes? Got any talents? Got any skills? Got any accomplishments that you're carrying around? You see, the badge of self-mutilization and the badge of sort of self-entitlement are equally heavy. Jesus says, Go ahead, hand them over. I'll take both. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the last things I'll say this morning about this passage, and there's much to say about it, um, is that I love the fact that when Jesus and Peter get back on the same page and get their relationship working right again, I love the fact that it happens over a meal. He swims to shore and then they have this little like fish and chips dinner at the beach, right? He says, come sit with me. Come share a meal with me. And let's, let's square up on the foundation of this relationship again. And friends, he offers the same thing to you and me. He says, come to the table. Let's share a meal. Let's remember again what the cornerstone of our relationship is church. It's my body broken for you and my blood shed for you. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what you've done. It's not about your successes. It's not about your failures. It is about the love of God displayed on the cross and seen in the empty tomb. That is what pushes the church forward to advance the kingdom of God in this world. Period. After I pray, I'm going to invite you forward. Come forward, find a table, take a piece of bread, the body of Christ, take a cup, the blood of Christ, Hold on to those and take them back to your seat. We're going to receive them together in just a moment. But take this time to remember that God offers you the free opportunity to bring your successes and to bring your failures, your shame, your regret. Laid at the foot of the cross today. Don't walk out of, don't walk out of here with any of that stuff. Do not be weighed down by yourself. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for his failure, his, his redemption, the way you received him even after 
what he had done. I pray that gives so much hope and life to us in this room. Thank you, Lord, that it is not dependent on us. Thank you that it is fully dependent on you. Because that is why we have so much hope. We love you, Jesus. And we pray it in your name. Amen.